This episode is supported by FX's Clipped, the scandalous story of the 2014 Clippers owner's racist remarks captured on tape and heard around the world. The series charts the tape's impact on a dysfunctional basketball organization striving to win against their reputation as the most cursed team in the league. Starring Lawrence Fishburne, Jackie Weaver, Cleopatra Coleman, and Ed O'Neill. FX's Clipped, streaming June 4th, only on Hulu. I never put much thought into tires in the past. The thought was always to drive what comes on my vehicle. And if I had to replace them, I made my decision based on price. Our friends at Cooper Tires know what they're talking about. Cooper has been an American company since 1914, with more than a century in the tire industry. Each Cooper tire undergoes rigorous testing and are backed by warranty, so you can trust that they'll last for thousands of miles. The Coopers pride themselves on good merchandise, fair play, and a square deal. Always have and always will. Don't overpay or underbuy. Cooper tires do what tires should do and cost what tires should cost. All Cooper tires are backed by a limited warranty, a 45-day test drive warranty, and select products are backed by Treadwear Mileage Warranty, helping to give you confidence on the road. For complete product and warranty details, please visit www.coopertires.com or www.coopertires.ca. And remember, go with the Coopers. Today's interview, I am so, so excited to play it for you. We uh, caught up with Rob Collins, the uh, designer and golf course architect, of course, for Sweetens Cove. We talk a lot about Sweetens Cove. We talk about Landman. We talk about the Buck Club. It's pretty all-encompassing. You know, we've gotten bits and pieces of the Sweetens Cove story uh, from Rob on the podcast over the years and in videos, but we needed the whole thing in one place, and that's what we got today. And it got emotional at certain times. Uh, he kind of teared up a little bit. I couldn't help but tear up, you know, talking about the story. And uh, I'm a sucker for a perseverance story, of course. And gosh, he really he tells it, and it, you can see the effect that it's had on him. There's some shocking revelations about about that story. Uh, so even if you're not familiar with Sweetens Cove, I think this that story is going to mean a lot to for people to hear. So, uh, well, I'll, I'll start this by saying you've been on before. You were on with Zach after the Ringer about a year and a half ago. Um, if we cover a couple things twice, I'm not worried about it. We're happy to welcome back Mr. Rob Collins. We are in the Sweetens house. We're in the Sweetens house. Could you have pictured a world that this that something like this would existed? No, people are buying up real estate around one of your golf no, courses. No, it's crazy. In fact, Colt in the shed today. So he looked at me and goes, Rob, this is just one of those days. Could you imagine this? And it was when, you know, Kisner was out there playing Drew Holcomb. And no, no, I couldn't have imagined this. And here you guys are. got Kill House North over here. The Birdhouse, I believe, the, the is, the House is, is the official name. The official name. All name. right. We got a special Sweetens wall to it. We, uh, we've been decorating. We built. You helped us build. Tell us about the, the front yard. What's in the front yard? We have got an awesome well, team. For people that don't know, we bought the house next to the first green at Sweetens Cove with, uh, with some friends of ours, and we'll be renting it out to people over the course of the years. It's the one that overlooks the first, uh, basically the first hole of par five. So tell us what's in the front yard. So the the guys had an idea for us to to help them build a little tee in the front yard, and one of our good friends, Jesse Smithy, a good friend of the program, uh, got them some sweet astroturf we put down. I went, I, I got an excavator out here and got them a little flat spot, and then Justin Hill came out and and dialed in a, a flat 
flat concrete pad and laid down the grass. So it's now the 10th hole. So it's now the 10th hole. Does it go in the routing and stuff? Exactly. For the official yeah, it's, a good, it's good routing. <laughs> it's a good angle. Well, it's funny. The, uh, the, the, we were at the ringer. Um, I forget when it was about a year ago, I guess around this time and we're doing an alternate shot match and I won't throw my partner under the bus, but my partner hooks one. Oh, what would be OB on one, but everything's lateral here. And it goes in this yard right next to a for sale sign. And I had to hit it out of this yard, and like I hit, uh, I hit it onto the green. It was a wild shot, and I came back, and we were like, everyone's like, oh, you got to buy the house now. And I walked in and to the to the clubhouse, and I was like, guys, that house next to number one. He's like, right, we're already on it. Like we already made, we already got the phone number down. We want to buy it. That's amazing. <laughs> I was out here a couple months ago with somebody, and they were like. I can't believe no one got bought that house. I knew I should have bought that house. So you, you had some you had some competitors, and, and I'm glad you guys swooped in and nailed it. Well, I want to talk a lot of Sweetens. I know we've done that before, but uh, I think people would also love to know a couple of different projects you are involved in and in different parts of the process. Let's start with Landman. Um, for if someone is listening to this and has no idea what Landman is, uh, what what is it? Where is it? And what where what's the current status? Landman Golf Club is going to be a new 18-hole course in Homer, Nebraska, which is about an hour and a half north of Omaha, and is really on a wild piece of terrain. It's uh, sitting on a bluff, basically, overlooking the Missouri River, and the analogy that I gave was like, if Sand Hills and Shinnecock Hills had a baby, but instead of giving the baby straight milk, they put some LSD in its milk. It would, this is the site. That's what their baby would look like. It is insane. Like there's one tree on the whole site. It's just this crazy rolling terrain. We got contacted by a guy named Will Anderson. His family owns a a farm out there and it's a really important part of their family history. His granddad used to own it and he's really good golfer, loves golf and he contacted us out of the blue last summer and we went out there and saw it and Tad and I were just like, holy shit, look at this place. I mean, we've been fighting for five years to get that big break and we knew it right then when we saw it. And it's funny because it's like the opposite problem we had at Sweetens Cove, which was if you haven't played it, it's a dead flat piece of ground, flat as this tabletop. And we had to pump everything up to make it interesting. We moved 250, 300,000 cubic yards of dirt and we you know, built these features up to kind of create interest and contour there, we're toning everything down. Hmm. And is so it a it, site that would, I, I guess, scare other ar- potential architects? Like, is it that dramatic? It is that dramatic. I mean, in fact, there were, um, there scare were, there, might not be the right word there. I think, you well, it, it, it just, it, it turned, there was a few that were, that looked at it. There was one other guy who wanted to do a project there and and fortunately we got it but there was another rather famous architect who looked at it um and he felt like it would cost too much money to build a golf course there and he wanted to do a a golf course down on a piece of property they have on a some sand down by the missouri river but when tad and i looked at that site we felt like it was an interesting site but it had water table issues and um, (laughs) we we, we, were done with doing that and um and as it turns out they they had historic flooding in that area this year and there was water all over that golf course what what would have been that golf course so we feel like we've definitely made the right decision and a site like landman's just really tailor-made for us where we can turn gusts loose and let them do their thing and um you know the end result or the end goal is to have everything tied down and look like we didn't move any dirt 
And, you know, you have to have big, broad tie-ins to do that, and that's what we're going to do. But in reality, to build seven or eight holes, seven or eight of the holes out there requires some pretty heavy moving just to make it work. Just to make it, and that, like you said, that's softening the lane. It's not, that's, we're it's softening. not making we're it softening. more dramatic. But yeah. the, I, I want to make you repeat it, because what you told me when I saw you last was you were describing, I forget, I don't know what hole number it is, but the Sitwell green that you're designing at Landman. Yeah. The description of what that green, and the, the, the actual height and the elevation change within that green stunned me and i still i'm struggling to understand it so what can you tell us about that so if you if you don't know there's a, a famous green that alistair mckenzie built at a place called sitwell park and he received a lot of you know got a lot of flack for it but some people loved it but ended up getting getting demolished but there's a, a picture you can google it google sitwell park alistair mckenzie and, and this picture will come up and there's seven or eight guys standing on different levels of this green and it's this green that's climbing this hill and it's just this insane green with all these different pockets and huge contours and tad and i always wanted to do a sitwell park green we've always looked for a place and um to do it and we found this piece of land out there it's gonna be the 17th hole and the end result is the green probably climbs 25 30 feet from the very bottom to the top (laughs) And it's like, it's going to probably end up being about 30,000 square feet. And it sounds insane, but it, I promise you it's actually going to work. I mean, it's so big and so broad and it's a short par four. So it works too. It's like a 300 yard par four. And, you know, if you get in the right spot, you know, you can make a birdie or eagle, but it can punish you too. So, but it's just a different take on an old theme. Well, you used the phrase there, a big break. And that was kind of something I wanted to talk about as well. What, I guess, did it take longer than you thought it would have for a big break considering the success of Sweetens Cove? And especially, it's, it's, a, it's a weird timeline, and we're gonna, I want to do the Sweetens Cove timeline here, but it was a long time before Sweetens Cove got recognized by anyone. But even once it started to be recognized, it felt like, we're kind of like, when is it, like, he's got to be getting a big job at some point. Did the, and this feels like that big break to you. Yeah, this is definitely our big break. Mm-hmm. There's no doubt about it. And we... You know, we we only do two jobs a year maximum. This is our first great project on a great site for a great client. And I was thinking about it last night, and it's like, not only is this our first big job, we're like, we've really got to hit a home run. So there's we're trying really hard for that reason. But also for the Anderson family. I mean, they gave us our break, and we want to hit the biggest home run ever for them. And so there's that side of it, and then it's, it's also just kind of the reality that it these types of jobs just don't come along very often and we're just out there really buckling down we're fortunate to have a lot of really talented people working with us and i couldn't be happier about what i'm seeing so far yeah that's exciting well why don't we do some some sweet and stuff now because i i've i keep referring back to the uh lying for blog post by will bardwell he did a great interview with you and I'm not asking you to re, to you know regurgitate everything word for word from it, but you you mentioned we as in your group. I'd like you kind of describe who your your firm is and who your company is and how that came to came to fruition and what your background in architecture is and how you ended up where you are today. Sure. So I um in 2005 2006 I was working for Gary Player as a what's called a design coordinator. It's I was basically like the on site architect carrying out the the vision of 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 the the 
senior designer from Player. And Tad and I met on a project in, in Florida. Tad King. Tad King, my partner, on a on a project in Florida called the Airy at Twin Eagles, which it's actually no longer in existence. Um, and and Steve Smyers ended up coming in and redoing it. But any long and short of it was is Tad and I were on that project and we noticed that there were real inefficiencies between the way things work between a contractor and the architect. I was having a hard time getting the contractor to do what the player group wanted. And every time you tried to make a little adjustment, there was a change order and it was expensive. And, and Tad and I looked at each other, we hit it off and got to be buddies and said, look, let's one day, let's form a, a business. We'll call it King Collins and we'll be a design build firm. And we cut out, you know, all the BS in the middle and we'll have total artistic control and everything take, take the whole project. And, and the, uh, you know, the, the recession in 2008 really forced our hand and I moved home. I didn't have a job. I ended up having to do some landscape architecture work, which was like pulling teeth for me. Not going too fast past that. You were in the middle of a, of constructing a golf course. That's right. I was exactly, we were doing a project up in uh, Wildstone in Cranbrook, British Columbia, which I believe a few of you guys have played. I know Tron's played it and Neil's played it. It's a really neat golf course. We were right in the middle of that. The day that was it Lehman Brothers that collapsed, mm-hmm. and we were grassing the third fairway, and I, I walked up to this guy named Ryan Kalinka who was grassing the hole, and I just said, "Dude, we're fucked. We're <laughs> totally fucked. This is over." And sure enough, you know, a month and a half later, we, I was driving my young family back to Chattanooga to live in my mom's house. You know, which is not the greatest feeling in the world as a at that point thirty three year old, and so. Hey, I did it when I was there. Okay. <clears throat> yeah, exactly. I, I mean, it's, it, yeah. <laughs> you know, it, it, I'm, I'm lucky we had a place to land, but it was, uh, that was a low point. You know, I didn't, this career that I was after was up in smoke and I didn't know when the next time I'd be able to do it was. And about a year later, Tad and I kept staying in touch and I said, man, let's just do it. You know, let's go for it. And so in 2010, we formed King Collins and right around that time we got real lucky and had this nine holer out in the Squatchy Valley, falling our laps. I mean, it was a—it's a dream site for golf. There's already a great golf course <laughs> there, right. right? I mean, it's just when you when you great think population, the, you know, <laughs> a, a great market for golf yeah, around here. I exactly. Assume, right? <laughs> when you when I'm looking at this great picture of Tahiti, and I'm, it was a lot like that. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> oh, yeah, the, the golf course is already there. All yeah, it's all we had to do. We just in. we just pushed it around a little bit. Exactly. <laughs> so what? Gosh, I don't even know where to start with it. But the, what what was here? What was here, and how did you end up convincing some someone this non-existent firm? Literally, had zero work to its name. Correct to this yep. point, say, yep. hey, let us design a golf course here. We got a uh, really good recommendation from a, a local Chattanooga golfing legend, a guy named King Emig. Uh, his family has a long history in golf in Tennessee, and he recommended me to the client uh, who was the Thomas family. They own a local concrete manufacturing company, and they own the golf course, which was the old Sequatchie Valley Golf and Country Club. And they, the, the two kings always confuse me it's about very, this. <laughs> it's very – it is confusing, exactly. And so the the Thomases ended up hiring us to, to rebuild this very – decrepit nine-hole golf course which at one time had been a really important part of the community here but had fallen on tough times had gone through a couple owners and it was an important part of their family history and they wanted us to improve it we set about doing that we built the golf course in 2011 2012 it took us about a year to finish it it was pretty clear early on that we had done something that 
had far outstripped the local market, which we had, had been very transparent going in. That it, that was our intention. Was we? I told Reese. I said, "Look, our goal is to build the best nine-hole golf course in the world. If that's what you want, hire us. If you don't want that, hire somebody else. But that's what we're. That's what we want to do." And so they hired us, and they had some difficulty on their end, kind of knowing what to do with it. And there were some differences of opinion about what to do with it. And the golf course actually ended up getting abandoned in 2013, having never been open, which the analogy I always give when I tell the story is like that scene from Temple of Doom when the guy rips the heart out of people's chest. I mean, I just, I remember that day, it was August of 13. I just could not believe that this golf course that was finished minus some sand and bunkers was not going to get open and what how so how long had you been working on at that point well we um we grassed it out in 2000 summer of 2012 and it was being maintained and i mean this little bit of a uh, sidetrack here but the seed that we put out on the bunkers if you've ever been to sweeten's cove there's like miles of bunker edge it didn't germinate it was stored in a hot uh, this is trailer. The, f- the framing the, around the, the bunkers. framing around the bunkers never germinated, and so we were like, "Well, I mean, we've got to replant it." And I actually worked for free in all of from like January to August of 2013, like redoing all the bunkers and helping the maintenance crew with other projects just to just to get the golf course open. We regrassed all the bunkers and everything, and that's when. That's when they pulled the plug. But um, from it would have been it was totally playable minus sand in the bunkers for the majority of 2013. But that was at a time when it was they just didn't know what to do with it, so they were just kind of maintaining it. And I was helping them maintain it and helping them get the bunkers ready and everything. And well, let's let's backtrack a bit into what is the golf course? What what became of the golf course? How what your inspiration was for it and how you came up with. And how you would actually describe the philosophy of the of the golf course? It's unlike anything I've played before. But why is that? Well, it was really clear to me early on. I think there were a couple of factors outside of our control that really helped drive the philosophy on it. One of which is it's a nine hole golf course. Number two, it's in the middle of nowhere. And I told Reese, I was like, "Look, man, we've got to do something different. You know, yeah. we can't just come out here and." do like something that looks like nine holes at the honors course, you know, as good as that may be, we can't, we got to do something different. We got to be outside the box. And one of my biggest architectural inspirations or heroes is, is Mike Strantz. And um, there's a lot of kind of tobacco road out here. I'm a huge fan of Pinehurst number two. I worship at the altar of Pinehurst number two. There's a lot of Pinehurst out here. There's a little bit of Pine Valley. There's I, the original version of Augusta National was a big inspiration. Big wide corridors, wild greens, short grass everywhere, tiny little windows where you really want to be in order to get the best angle. You know, you might have a 100-yard wide fairway, but there might be a 15-yard wide alleyway where you really want to be. And so those kinds of things were what, what we were thinking about, in which all that's, of course, handed down from the old course. And Tad and I wanted to basically mix it all up. Like if you put all these ideas in a blender and spit it out, you might see something that you'd say like, gosh, that kind of reminds me of Pine Valley or that kind of reminds me of Pinehurst, but I'm not quite sure. So everything in its physical representation is a little bit of a a play on some of these things you've seen elsewhere. And I think that's why it it may feel familiar, but different at the same time. I don't like using the word easy with it, but it, there's nothing, I don't want to say nothing intimidating about it, because some of the slopes, when you get the ball running away from you, like it'll sure. hurt. But I I consider that the most enjoyable 
punishment in golf. Yes. I hate hitting at OB. I hate looking yes. for balls. I hate hitting it in the water. Yes. I, I, can't, I don't know anyone who loves going through multiple golf balls in a round, but you still want to be stimulated and challenged through exactly. it. So exactly. It, at the same time, there's no shot, almost no shots. Or there's always a way to get to the holes out here, probably using some kind of slope that's mm-hmm. not right in front of you. That's right. Like the first hole hits you right off the bat yep. with, hey, like a big par five, you can come in with a five iron, you can come in with a three wood, you can come in with a nine iron, whatever you come in with. But there are just eight, eight different mounds around that green yep. that you can use to get to the hole. That's 100% right. And that, that's a lot of the philosophy behind it. And, you know, you look at a hole like number one or number four, which is a, a par three that's semi-blind with a 20,000 square foot serpentine green with all these mounds and fall-offs and everything. And on its face, it looks crazy. But what I was thinking about and what Tad and I were both thinking about during construction was like, you know, there's going to be easy pins on this and there's going to be hard pins on this. It's all about variety. But, you know, also we were thinking, okay, let's say you have a 170 yard just standard par three with a bunker on the right and it's angled a little bit and a bunker behind your average 15 handicap is going to, if they play that hole 10 times is going to have an average score of what, maybe four, four and a half, something like that. Mm -hmm. I mean, they're going to, they're going to be a bogey golfer on it in, I feel like that's basically the same thing that happens to you on number four at Sweetens Cove, even though it's a completely different golf hole. Like a 15 handicap is probably going to average a four or a little bit higher. But one day they might just get absolutely ejected and eaten alive and make like a, a six. And then the next day they you know might have a little tap-in birdie. Mm-hmm. But it's like there's so many different options and so many different ways that the game can play out on that, that canvas that – it's just, it's more interesting. And, you know, first time around, you might look at it and go, well, this is Mickey Mouse, or this is stupid. This is this is too much. But after repeat play, you start to realize that, you know, there's a lot of thought that went into it, and it, it asks things of you that maybe you're not accustomed to. Were you afforded, uh, gosh, I, I was getting ready to say afforded luxury, but I, that's the, just the wrong word to use in this whole entire time period. But were you afforded the luxury of, during this weird time period, shortly after the financial crisis, there wasn't a lot of jobs to be had so that you had the possibility and the, the time and to basically extend your time frame that you worked on this into making it a masterpiece. Like you weren't under a tight time frame in doing this. Does that sound right? That, that's, a, that, that's basically correct. I mean, we did have a budget and we did have a, a time frame within which we wanted to finish the golf course and, and do it under a bu- certain budget. But at the same time, it was a home game for me. And then Tad moved down here for the last four months or so of it. So we were able to dedicate ourselves 100% to this thing. And that's a rare thing in in golf architecture. I think at the time there was maybe five or six golf courses being constructed domestically in the United States. And the weird thing is two two of them were nine-hole golf courses in eastern Tennessee, the other being the Sewanee Golf Course near where I went to college just 30 minutes up the road from here. And so that was kind of a weird, quirky thing. But we, you know, it was everything to us. I mean, the the thing that kept resonating in my mind was like, if we screw this up, there is no number two. We will never get another. I mean, I'm going to end up doing something I hate for the rest of my life. We cannot mess this up. And I actually carried around this, um, I carried around two pictures in my wallet. I I got this, uh, golf holiday calendar for Christmas the year before and there was a a golf course somewhere I can't remember where in the northeast 
by, I won't say the name of the architect, and it was the most bland bunkering, just total close your eyes, no artistic input whatsoever, just, it was a big waste bunker, like the kind of ones we're building out at Sweetens, but it was just, just lifeless. Lifeless. It looked it was dead behind the eyes. <laughs> and I had a picture of, I can't, I've toured the golf course, the 14th hole at Boston Golf Club or the 13th, you know, that hole that, that swoops down, that really cool hole with the big artistic bunker that Gil and Jim did it's on the, the left hand the, side. The pot bunker in the middle of the, uh, the center line bunker in, and then they took it out. That's 12, I, I think. I can't but... remember. It's, it's a, I think it's a par five, okay. but it's got this amazingly artistic bunker along the left hand side. And I knew how it was obvious how much they tried, how much effort they put into that. Mm-hmm. And I said, this is, this is what we got, you know, not necessarily trying to exactly copy that look, but we're copying, we're, or we're deriving inspiration from that effort um, in construction to really build something special. And so for me personally, one of my main responsibilities on the project had finished all the greens and tees and fairways. I did most of the bunkering. We had a assist from a Cor Crenshaw shaper named Dan Proctor, who was, was awesome to work with too. But when it all came down to it at the finish, it was just me and Tad and, and some local guys. And every square inch of bunker out there was ended up being hand edged by me. And it was like, I didn't care if it was like the back of a bunker, you know, on an Island on the left side of number three, that you're literally never going to see unless you like duck hook a ball in there. Or if it's like in front of number nine green that everybody's going to see, like all of it mattered to me the exact same. Mm-hmm. And that, that was just the constant push was like, just, the more I put into it, the more I wanted it. Yeah. The more I wanted it, the more I put into it. And it just became this snowball. And it just it became part of me. And I couldn't let it go. I could not let it go. And it just consumed me. Yeah. That's what I think. And I just felt like I owed it to myself. Like, I've fucking worked my ass off here. You know, I've I got to – you can't stop now. You know, okay, well, that bunker doesn't look right. Well, get back out there and make it look right. Yeah. When I, even when I didn't want to, or, or it was hard or I wasn't, you know, I was working for free. Yeah. And, tell, explain that you're working for free. Well, in- I mean, we had, the, the client had, you know, c- completed their obligation to King Collins. They were, they were a great client. I mean, I, I credit Reese Thomas, um, our main contact with, he has as much responsibility for the existence of Sweetens Cove as anyone. I mean, he turned us loose and let us go and, I mean, it's just remarkably <laughs> grateful for, for that. And, um, you know, we we were done in 2012, and it was the client's obligation at that point to get the golf course open. But as I told you the story about the bunkers and everything, you know, they were on a budget, and there wasn't a budget to pay me. But I was like, well, if I want it done right, i got to do it myself. And so, you know, I've had a few just, like, random landscape architecture jobs that I could – do on the side to help pay the bills. But basically all of my working time in 2013 was coming out to Sweetens and I was not getting compensated. How, how does that work within your family? Is that a well, tough it, conversation Denise, at home? Um, you know, she's <laughs> trusted me a lot with this and has really supported me. I mean, it's not been easy for her. That's what I think you know, people can kind of tease people that uh, are part of the Sweetens. Well, it's like it's a cult, I think, at this part. It's totally a cult. But the story behind it is what makes it what it is. I mean, that, and that's just that's one punch you got. What are some other examples of just punches you received along the way? Because that's not the only one. Well, here's a here's a humorous punch. I um, 
we got probably in like June or July of that 13 year, I came out in the morning and if anybody's been spending any time around me, Patrick Boyd, my friend, former GM calls me the most hydrated man in America. I drink like two gallons of iced tea a day. I don't know why, but I do. And I came out in the morning and I had to pee really bad and I pull up and there's a mobile drug lab that's going to test all these guys that are working for the concrete company. And why? Like, well, th- th- I don't know why, but they, they were there. It was, it was through the company. And if those guys had gotten tested, we had, we had a bunch of guys out there at that point. We had a, like a pretty big crew going to help us get these bunkers ready. I'm like, if these guys get axed, like this isn't going to, we're not going to finish. Yeah. Like we need their help. Because, you know, every single one of them smoked weed or whatever, and they were they were going to fail. So I filled up That's a, part of the reason why the bunkers look so good. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. So I filled up a, you know, very on-brand for Marion County, like a 20-ounce Mountain Dew bottle with my own urine, and took it down to the place where they were supposed to pee in the cup, and every single one of them poured it in the cup, and they all passed. <laughs> Except for one guy who said, Rob, I sprinkled a little bit of mine in there. And I was like, oh, no. why did you do that? He's anyway. And I mean, that's just one, just one, that's just one, one example. I mean, um, you know, the biggest gut punch was the leaving them, leaving the golf course. And they, I actually got approached that day and they said, Rob, do you want to take it over? I know you're, you're the one who's most passionate about this. And, my first reaction is like, well, hell no, I don't want to take it over. I want you guys to run it. And then I thought about it for a day. I talked to Denise. I talked to Tad. And I mean, it just didn't. There's no precedent for that, right? No. I mean, I just, I needed like one one millionth of a mile an hour wind behind my back to, <laughs> yeah. to have, I was going to jump off the cliff. And so within 24 hours, I decided I was going to, in fact, take it over. I needed a partner, though. And I looked for a partner, looked for a partner in November of, 13, I met Ari Techner, the founder of Scratch Golf, and Patrick Boyd, our future GM. They came out to tour the golf course. The course had been abandoned for three months at that point. And Ari was like, yeah, sure, I'll do it. And I'm like, sweet. And so we got a real serious. A break. We got real serious about the negotiations. And, and then finally in May of 14, we took it over on our own. And, we, and it was me and Ari and then... In time, we, we brought on some more people. A huge kick in the, the teeth was um, we were chronically underfunded. We knew that we needed financial help. It, it, there was no way for me and Ari to do it ourselves. And um, we had talked to a developer out of Knoxville, and that ended up falling through. And we opened the golf course in October of 2014. I have some really funny pictures from that like Ron Witten, like the preeminent golf architecture journalist in the world. And Adam Lawrence, another one of the most preeminent golf architecture journalists in the world. He's from England. He was in the Sequatchie Valley, for God's sakes, to come to come to this opening. And it was just the most cheap-ass opening you've ever seen. I mean, my dogs are walking around. We had crackers. I mean, it was there, there was nothing, you know? There was a blue portalette, maybe. And, um, and in case you're not familiar with Sweden's, there's no there's no food stand. Like the clubhouse is yeah. literally a shed. There's yeah. no bathrooms or any of that. So it, that to set, helps was, set the scene. Yeah, exactly. And so you know we had these like really important people in the world of golf architecture there to, to see this opening, and we ran out of money that day. 
and I had to that let, exact day. I had to let the maintenance crew go. We had no more money, and then so Tad and I um, maintained the golf course by ourselves um, into like December, and then Tad had to go home and go to another job. He ended up getting a job at like in Jordan or some place. And and then I, I continued to maintain the golf course for myself through the remainder of uh, 14. And then in early 15, we raised some capital to kind of help us move on. And we hired a... When you say maintain the golf course yourself, are you mowing? Are you... Well, it was, in, it was, in, the, it was in the wintertime. And so there's a lot of bunker work. The, the grass wasn't growing, but there was... It gets cold here. And so you have to put tarps on the greens. And I'd have to pay out of my pocket to get three or four guys to help me put the tarps on the greens and, and all this no kind of small stuff, task which is no small task. It's, 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 it's an absolute beast trying to put tarps on these greens. And, and we did all that. Patrick and I have a, a funny story of Patrick's one of the most loyal guys ever. And Patrick's like, Rob, I believe in you. I believe in this place. I want to be the GM. I, I know you can't pay me now, but just pay me my back pay. I'll, I'll sit up in the, in the shed. And so Patrick would, we were open. So Patrick would sit in the shed, not receiving any compensation on the hope that somebody would invest before April rolled around. Hmm. Because once the grass starts growing, if you're not, then you're, then it's done. If you're not getting play. You're exactly. Done. And we weren't getting any play at the time. And so how do uh, you even drum up play? Well, we, we were just, it was scrambling so hard to get the word out, but we would make, you know, $150 in a day or something. And all that money was going to the bank to keep the equipment package. We were way behind on our lease payments and they were threatening to take the equipment. If they took the equipment, we were done, which then was going to be compounded by me probably having to file personal bankruptcy and all this other awful stuff. And so we just kept maintaining the golf course, hoping we'd get some money. And we raised some money in February, which like right in time. And we hired Brent, our, who's our, still our superintendent, does an awesome job out here. And we opened with, you know, very, very limited maintenance crew. And we got caught up on our lease payments. And, and then we just kind of just barely just one foot in front of the other for for a long time but it's still i mean 14 and then i guess you tell me the timeline into 15 where you know you're getting play you're you're drumming on bitters but still money's not flowing in no it? not at all in fact we were hemorrhaging cash we, we 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 were losing 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 money all through 15 lost money lost money in 16 which we have this thing right now called this the summer of 16 at sweetens where we've changed our way we're running the business where we limit the number of people out on the golf course on the weekends it's like the summer of 16 where we had like this really well-maintained golf course but nobody was on it it was like this magical time i mean the only thing that sucked about it was we were constantly worried about going out of business but hopefully you got some play in but we got yeah (laughs) you exactly got a little play in and um you know it was it was just a kind of a, a wild time to go out there on like a 75 degree day and it would be there'd be like 10 people on the golf course and the course was in perfect shape and it was very stressful. And then fast forward to 2017 at the end of 2016, I took one last insane financial risk that was just, I mean, if it didn't succeed, I was really in big trouble personally. And the golf course was definitely done. And we were just, blasting through money in 2017 even on a with a shed on top of the hill 
of minimal maintenance crew. We just could not make the dollars work. And, um, Golf course business, it's, I guess it's, it's just, just highlighting how freaking hard it is. It's really hard. It's why you don't want to manage it yourself. It's really hard. And so I had gotten to be friends with this guy named Dylan DeChair, who now writes for, for Golf Magazine. And long story short, he calls me and says that he was write, wanted to write a story about Sweetens Cove, and he was going to shoot for the stars and try to get it in the New York Times. And I was like, sweet, go for it. You know, good luck. Bud. Good luck with that. Yeah, we'll, we'll probably end up in you know who knows what publication. But he called me in early August of 2017 and said that he had done it and it, the the Times was going to pick it up. And this was at a time when I was working on a, a project with Tad down in Florida, and I was in full panic mode. I mean, I was absolutely freaking out. It was we were done. I was convinced that we were done, and we had just a tiny little bit of money in the checking account. My last minute gambit had not worked. It had failed. We were failing. And that thing went in the times and it just, it saved it. That was everything. It saved it. What, what we was, started cash flowing at that point. And yeah, what was the uptick like after that? Oh, it was, it was, just, it was immediate. I mean, we, two straight months, we actually broke even or made a little bit of money. And it was just Patrick and I were just, and our other investors were just beside ourselves. Like, Oh my God, this could actually work. You know, like we just like got this tiny little glimpse of light at the end of the tunnel. Hmm. We just kind of kicked the damn door down. Do I have this right? Or I guess this is in Will's article as well. To this day, you've never drawn a salary from Sweden's Cove. I've never made a penny. To this day, I still haven't made a penny. I've never made anything. (laughs) That's that's insane. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I, I don't. I don't even understand that. Okay, so, all right. So fast forwarding now, 2017 near 2017 is kind of when you start positive. 2018 is a good year. 2018 was, you know, we we did okay in 2018, but it wasn't, you know, we we were growing. You know, the dots weren't quite connecting yet, but it was it was like it wasn't to the point of losses where you were, you know, I could put some money in from a, you know, if King Collins had a project, I could. You know, I could take some of the money I made from that and put it in and mm. prop it up for a month or two and that kind of thing. But you are actively looking to be out of the management. Oh, 100%. Of yeah, we were. Th- and that was the whole thing all along was like Ari and Patrick and I and our other investors were like, we've got a – this is a great golf course. People love it. It's starting to develop a following. We know that there's somebody out there. We know it, and and that was the whole intention was we got to find that guy. We talked, we had talked to so many people in Chattanooga, so many people, you know, across the country, and I mean, I had started to develop a little bit of chip on my shoulder about it with respect to the Chattanooga thing. I'm just like, I, I cannot believe that there's not somebody in Chattanooga who doesn't want to get involved out here. I mean, I, I can't understand it, and the the more knows we heard the more pissed off I got and the more I dug my heels in. It's like with the bunkers, like the more I put into it, the harder I stuck my feet in the ground. Which something I've always noted with you is you have a a tremendous pride in this place and a confidence in it. You know, it was not like, oh, maybe it's not that good. Maybe it's not worth it. It's always like, no, no, this is my thing, and it's great. Like, it is great. And yeah. I always admire people that are confident enough in what they've done to be like, proud of it in that way. Otherwise, you wouldn't have risked everything. To yeah, no, absolutely. Golfers. I mean, it was like, this place is totally worth it, yeah. and it and it will work. I know it'll work, and I know we can make it work. We've just got to find the right person. And, it, and the fact that it took four years, four or five years, was just, just a total head-scratcher. I, but – 
If but, you were to, if but. you were, to, if you were to make a wish list of people that you would want to be a part of this ownership group in the state of Tennessee, what would that wish list look like? <laughs> well, I want you to tell the story in sequential order. So, so if, again, the, you're dreaming. You're well, dreaming. yeah. So Patrick and I are dreaming in 2016, 17, 18, and we would sit on the porch and talk about people and like, man, if we could ever get Peyton Manning in, interested in this, like he's a cool guy. He loves golf. Who knows? I mean, he would, he'd would he be the ultimate guy. I mean, it, the list was Peyton Manning at number one, and then the, at number 199 is some, somebody else. I mean, it was, it's just – There's no one. There was, there was, yeah. there was, he was the one that we would ultimately want more than anyone. So there's rumblings. When do you start hearing some rumblings that you have some interest in a potential, in a potential buyer or investor group? When, and kind of walk us through that timeline. So I was um, – sitting in the shed working, checking people in in September of 2018, kind of the season's kind of winding down. And I got a phone call out of the blue from this guy named Mark Rivers, uh, who's a partner with uh, another uh, guy uh, named Skip Bronson. They have a ton of real estate experience. Um, Skip's really into golf. And Mark's talking to me about this project that he's interested in King Collins doing in New York. And I thought, well, that's that's cool. I'd love to meet this guy. And Mark comes out and we hit it off and I'm giving him a tour around Sweetens and he starts asking me questions. And I'm like, I don't think he's only interested in this project in New York, just the way the things he was asking me. And then very matter of factly at the end, after he, he bought some merchandise, he looks at me and goes, yeah, I think we'd be interested in getting involved here too. And I was just like, Oh yeah, here we go. And um, we had just come off a very serious conversation with another golf developer, well-known golf developer, who had made a very serious offer to us to take Sweetens off of our hands, and he just wasn't offering enough. And we said no. We walked away from it. At that point in time, we were like, it has to be the right fit. Right. I mean, we at this point, we've, we've kind of – we're not making any money, but we're not going to be destitute asset. either. We've got an asset. We've got to find the right person. So we were, we knew we needed the, the right group. And in the conversation, in the tenor, the negotiations with Mark and Skip, and um, were completely different than anything I'd ever encountered. For the first three years, it was always just total dismissal from people, like, "Oh, that'll never work. You're basically an idiot for doing this." And then it was like, "Oh yeah, this place is amazing. We want to steal it from you." Mark and Skip were like, "We want to be partners, and we want to give you the, you know, rocket fuel that this place needs to really take off." And as it turned out, we cut a deal with them, and Mark um, was really good friends with Andy Roddick, and Andy was part of the group, and, a, and another guy named Tom Nolan, who um, is really well connected in, in the golf industry, he used to run the golf's Ralph Lauren division, and is very well connected. He's part of the ownership group, and. It was just a dream, a dream scenario, and that all came about right around the time of the the ringer, and and I believe it was in March of nineteen. Mm-hmm. We were kind of sealing that deal up, sealing the deal up, and so you go out to dinner with with Mark, I believe. That's right. That night yep. to settle it. Yeah, we well, we, had, we actually Mark and I we had a deal in place, and um, I was going to get to go meet Tom Nolan for the first time. I'd never met Tom. Mark said, "Let's go. We're going to go out to dinner and." Tom's coming in town and we're going to meet him. And I'm like, okay, great. That's awesome. And so we went to this Ruth's Chris steakhouse and I'm uh, sitting at the bar with Mark and my back's to the door and 
Mark goes, oh, hey, they're here. And I thought, they, that's kind of weird. Like, I thought we were only meeting Tom. And I turn around and walking towards me is this guy that's one guy that I assumed was Tom Nolan. The other guy definitely wasn't Tom Nolan. It was Peyton Manning. And uh, Peyton walks up to me and goes, hey, I'm Peyton Manning. And I said, <laughs> I said, hey, I'm Rob Collins. And Mark goes, and he's your fifth partner. And I just, it's like, holy shit. Unbelievable. And walking through a crowded restaurant on a Thursday night in Chattanooga to a back room behind Peyton Manning and looking at the looks on people's faces. <laughs> That's the funniest thing I've ever seen. I mean, how do you go from... I mean, he's, you know, people just like, oh my... Like, Peyton Manning, you know, yeah, he has a way in this state still, oh, yeah. for sure. But it's like, how do you go from everything you're talking about from 2013 to that moment? So it was insane. I mean, I texted, I texted Denise and I said, "You'll never guess who the fifth partner is." And she texted back and she goes, "Peyton?" Question mark. And I was, and I sent her this GIF of one of Peyton in that one of those commercials where he's nodding his head, and and then I, I texted Brent. Brent's a huge Tennessee fan. I said, you'll never guess who the fifth partner is. And he goes, oh, shit, I'm going to shit. Is it Peyton? <laughs> and I was like, just wait till tomorrow. You'll see. And, you know. And you, I believe you, you relayed the story of you calling Patrick. Didn't you give Patrick a call and say, ask him the question, like, who's the? Yeah, who's the one? I said, Patrick, who's the one guy we want? Peyton? Like, yep. It's happening. <laughs> it was just unbelievable. Yeah. It was just... I mean, every time I read Will's piece, I, I get choked up in the restaurant scene. I mean, it, it gets me every single time. I just can't believe that it happened. We were so close to dying so many times. And then to, like, hit a walk-off Grand Slam in the bottom of the ninth of the World Series, like, out of the stadium, bat flip. was just insane. God. <laughs> And now you're on to Landman. And now, and now we're on to Landman. And, you know, Sweetens is uh, the analogy I give is that it's like a fruit bearing tree. And it took a long time for it to bear fruit, but now it is. And, and now we're getting those phone calls that we always wanted. And I always used to get kind of triggered and I'd spout off on Twitter every now and again about, you know, oh, you know, so and so's doing a golf course. And, well, they're going to look at David McClay Kidd, Cor Crenshaw, and, and uh, Tom Doak, and no, they might call Gil Hines too. And it's like, oh, big fucking surprise, really, you know? But, you know, Sweetens just kept growing, and, and everything that Tad and I have is thanks to Sweetens. I mean, the leads that we get, I just talked to a client today, you know, that looks like there's something that could happen soon um that i was thought was shelved <laughs> and that's thanks to sweetens landman's thanks to sweetens will's buddy cj um knew all about sweetens cove will actually hadn't heard of it and C- cj will had interviewed a few other architects and and everything and cj's like you gotta call these guys that did sweetens cove and so will emailed me and i emailed him back and that's how it happened mm-hmm. you know no sweetens no landman no nothing well, what would you have done if you – it's hard to say now with you landing in such a great situation finally after so many years of perseverance, but what would you have done differently? Man, uh, I, I, gosh, I, I don't know. I mean, I, I think the perseverance um, was an essential part of it, but um, 
you know, without that, it it wouldn't have happened. But like maybe we could have been a little more proactive here and there, trying to talk to different investors. But it was always a hard conversation. But the funny thing about it is, is like if I had done something differently, the the, the history may be completely exactly. completely rewritten, and we wouldn't have gotten that grand slam. We would have like hit a double off the wall. Butterfly effect is exactly it's too. Yeah, it's too. It's too much. We didn't. When did uh, I don't remember this until recent years. When did the flood? We we kind of hinted at, at the top. When did the flooding hit you? When it came? Where does explain to us where Sweetens sits and what happens periodically up here and and why? So Sweetens is in a in a floodplain next to a, a creek called Battle Creek that spills into the Tennessee River, and periodically the golf course floods. We had one flood during construction. And it was rather harrowing to see it the first time. You just can't believe that all this sand and all this shaping that you've put together is like underwater. And we all panicked. And then it goes away. It goes down through the drainage system and it goes away. And, you know, normally when you put the word flood and golf course in the same sentence, it's like this brings up these really bad images. But catastrophic. Catastrophic kind of images like, like the Greenbrier where there's rocks all over the greens and stuff but that doesn't really happen here it kind of just comes up slow and goes away and like this year was just the worst year we've ever had with flooding it um flooded eight or nine times and 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 i feel so bad for brent and the guys i mean they've got to go out there and put it all back together Mm -hmm. and i mean it's funny you look at there's certain parts of the golf course like over by number three and number five where the water comes across and it comes across at the exact same point Every single time it's been doing it for thousands of years and it just rips the sand right out of the right out of the bunker and they have to go and put the sand back in that same spot and they you know, you do that nine times in a year and you clean all the debris off and the fish out of the catch basins and yeah. <laughs> it's just a nightmare. Yeah. Um, but it, it's a resilient course too. Yeah. You know. It survives, man. It, it survives. Just, even after and the, the I playing it today, it was in incredible shape. I, I, I couldn't compliment Brent and those guys enough. I mean, for the condition that Sweetens is in right now with all that water, mm-hmm. they've done a r- remarkable job. It was fast and firm, and the greens are incredible right now. All right, well, we're almost 50 minutes into this chat, and we haven't talked about the Buck Club yet, which has been... We I, we had you on the podcast a year and a half ago with Zach. Where's talk, that one? Talking about... <laughs> we got to answer that question. <laughs> talking about the Buck Club, the plans for it. Uh, I think at that time, Zach had insinuated that the Dozers might would put to, hopefully start May of 2019. Yeah. That did not happen in yep. Utah, but the Buck Club is active and running. So tell us about where things currently stand. So Zach has um, had his eye for a couple years on a, a piece of land, in the a sandy piece of land in the southeastern United States where he could potentially launch the Buck Club. And, of course, it was always considered a Utah project, and that was the intention. But as we got into trying to make the numbers work between a very expensive land purchase and a very expensive construction because that golf course on the upper 100 side out in in Morgan, Utah, needed to be sand-capped, you know, it needed drainage, and it was double the amount that it's going to cost to build even more holes in the Southeast on sand. It's not possible to just put sand down on a soil and have it be the way you want to play it. Yeah. I mean, you've, it just takes a long time and, and it it costs money. I mean, you have to bring that sand in and Zach found a sandy site, which is the ideal 
you know, soil for, for a golf course. It requires less drainage, so it, it costs half as much as it would have cost to build out, out in Utah. And when you start talking about those kind of differences in, in numbers, you get into a place where, where economically the Buck Club starts to make sense. And so um, Zach has secured this really remarkable piece of land, uh, sandy, 407 acres, rolling terrain. It's pretty funny. Zach will... Zach has one of the most creative minds of, of anyone I've ever met, and he's you know always tweaking around with the routing and the hole designs and stuff that he's putting together. And he'll send me these these voice text messages. And I was listening <laughs> to one the other night, and Denise goes, "Oh, here we go again." And, you know, it, it she's, he's got it. You know, his voice it's very distinctive, and he's like, "Okay, here's what I'm thinking on number three. So you got this fucking sick dog leg and this and that and." <laughs> <laughs> I've gotten those those messages. As and well. It's it's so fun to to go through that process with him, and um, he's actually got a lot of founder commitments already. I this thing is is happening. It's really happening. It's happening. How many holes? Where is it? I know you well, guys aren't disclosing the exact so location. Zach has a absolutely brilliant concept. Um, this is was his idea. We were out there two weeks ago walking around. Originally, we thought we were going to do 36, and then it was going to be 18, and we were trying to route the best 18 holes. And Zach looks at me and goes, I think we ought to do like four different loops of of six holes, so 24 holes. The clubhouse is going to be sited kind of in the middle of the property, so that a lot of the times the holes are kind of coming back to the middle of the property to the clubhouse. And his idea is to have a championship routing that then off of that, there's like three or four different routings where you could play a, like a 6,800 yard par 69 course or a, you know, a 666 course. And there's a short course and there's all these different iterations of the routing in those 24 holes. And so what the concept is, is that in the mornings, you'd play the quote-unquote, you know, championship TBC course, the, you know, kind of the big one. And then in the afternoon, on a Monday, let's say, it's routing number B. And then on the afternoon on Tuesday, it's routing C. And on afternoon on the following day, it's routing D. And so, you know, you kind of get always getting a different different look. And then, you know, the way the cabins are going to be set up, it's really cool. You can kind of come out of the back of your cabin and, play a quick three or four or five hole loop. Um, it's just tons and tons of variety. Great piece of ground. They're in a square inch of that 407 acres that you couldn't easily build a golf hole on. So It's got tons of potential. Everything's lined up with financing and land and everything. It's You guys are w- way further along. He's, than we're a lot Utah. further along than we were in Utah. He's, he's working on the, the financing side of it, but he's, he's raising that right now, and, and the land is, is locked down. So he's um, not funding it just from selling hats. Correct. That's right. Yeah, yeah, exactly. We've got real, 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 exactly. Real serious founder commitments, um, of a real dollar figure. Completely private. Sorry if I missed this. Well, um, my understanding at the moment is, is to have a private time of year and then also a a public time of year. Okay. So it's a little, it's a little bit of both. Okay. Has that balance in there. Yep. So, so, what, so everybody would get a chance to play it, which so is the, really cool. The original routing of the Buck Club in Utah, we have it hanging up in our in the Kill yep, House. Yep. Um, I want to know how much of that 
the ideas you guys came up with there, how much is bleeding over into the new routing, how many holes are similar. I know it's a completely different piece of land. Is it completely scrapped and separated, or, or I would did, say did it build that off I, of each other? I would say that the the holes are not necessarily transferable, but the mindset and the philosophy. design philosophy behind it is is the same. Mm-hmm. You know, the the Butt Club in, in in Utah was all about you know multiple avenues to the hole width and you know all kinds of different playing scenarios short grass everywhere it's a, it's a similar concept but just um you know more fit to this different site mm-hmm. that's exciting well it's gonna be fun to follow yeah, it um, is we're pumped about it wrapping wrapping all this up and kind of summarizing your career in golf your life in golf what's what's your overall message about it what how do you how do you summarize and tie together everything you've you've been through and where you currently are it's just it's been a an unbelievable ride um you know i get phone calls and and emails and stuff from guys who want to intern with us which i want to do i want to pass pass the buck along to people who help me and i I just kind of always say to guys like you know you're going to hear the word no 99 times for every time you hear the word yes and if you really want to do something in golf or golf architecture just focus keep working hard keep plugging and good things will happen and and i think i believe that's true i think if you focus and have your eye on an end goal and and don't give up you're gonna get good results Mm -hmm. well in my head i like to give us credit for how hard we work to like build our brand but in in comparison like we haven't really faced adversity (laughs) i don't i don't know if I, i i can actually pretty confidently say I don't know if I would have lasted as long as you did as far as getting punched in the face as many times as you had to. And we all get to, that's what, you know, I kind of, I think I said this at the end of the video that we made at uh, the Ringer at Sweetens is like, thank you for building that because like it brings a lot of, it does bring a lot of people together and it could have very easily, very, very easily, very easily not have happened or gone away. Well, and and I always say, um, you know, to you guys that Sweetens would not exist without no laying up, period. Would not exist. Tron played it with with Neil in 2015 and 16, and you know when I when Patrick and I were working out in the shed all those days, we always asked people, where, "Where where did you guys hear about it?" And I mean, every single day, even when it wasn't crowded, oh, we heard about it from from No Laying Up or, or the Fried Egg, and and you guys are a huge part of the reason that we're here, and the fact that you guys have this house here is like the perfect. You know, yeah, it's per- postscript it to the story. Brings it all together. <laughs> it's awesome. So we, there it is. We both had equal contributions to Sweden's Co. That's, that's it. Yeah. <laughs> we ought to go hit some shots off the mat and, and see, should, see what we got. We should go play. We may have to grab a couple beers and go do it. But thank you for finally sitting down and doing the whole story. Oh, I've been. Uh, I feel like I owe you a big hug at the end. Of I know, this. man. So we, we, we will do a yeah, Corona fake. Hug yeah, exactly. Hug there won't be any real hugs. 